Welcome to episode 229 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have as our featured guest, Todd Tungdi Lavelle, Fulbright scholar, herbist, musician, impresario, philosopher, and just pretty much down-to-earth good guy to talk with us today about his journey from northeastern Pennsylvania to Thailand and some of the great individuals he's worked with, learned from here and there and everywhere in between. Uh, I had this conversation with Todd about a month and a half ago and I held it into the vault waiting for the right time to share it, and I think it is the right time, given what's going on globally, in particular uh, in regard to uh, climate change and, well, several other issues as well, hate and violence. There's so much. It's always going on, but a lot of it's just coming to a head as far as I see it, and uh, I thought, and I I think you'll enjoy too, I thought this conversation would be apropos. We we have... uh, also on the program, another installment of Uncle Cesare coming from our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, a wonderful essay titled Spinsters. We have an EW essay by yours truly titled Kofefe or Kofifi, depending on how you choose to pronounce. A poem as well that is titled Stellar Amica. And as is always the case, of course, several great tunes to share. Let's get to it. Episode 229 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Clip and you're near the king of the bayou. Hey, it's 
A dwindling darkness shrouds the steps of each day as the happenstance leader at the podium farther to the indomitable right does sway as we the people pray or obey or gaze the other way. No more. This must stop or we will most certainly pay. I ain't talking no jungle warfare a la Cuba's Che. I'm talking about otherwise ordinary people thinking responsibility and putting themselves right in the thick of the fray, not solely because it's truly the ethical, moral, thus responsible approach, but too because your ancestors dreamed you would, because deep down in your soul and within the synapses, unfiltered, you know you should. If not, if you don't understand that this very limited man who is the president of our country and his weirdo clan and opportunist party colleagues They will titillate their egos and outsized ids at the expense of our physical and spiritual well-being. How can you not see this? Why don't you say something? Is this an egalitarian republic? Are we developed emotionally and intellectually beyond an adolescent understanding of our world? Despite the Kofi-Fi, we shan't let Trump and his lexicon of enablers continue to wiggle at us their unctuous white wee-wees.
Hello, Todd Lavelle. Is that you? It is. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. It's a distinct pleasure, sir. It's an honor to have you, and uh, I've heard great things about your show, so I'm glad I got the time while I'm home to uh, talk to you. Great. Well, before we get started, let me give a little bit of background. I'll let you really fill in most of the blanks, but... Todd, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give more of an expansive name. A lot of folks know you as Todd Tongdi Lavelle. There you go. AKA Thailand Todd in your own neighborhood. I'm sure you hear here in Scranton where you're from. Um, I don't know if that's an accurate representation or not, but I do know that you've lived in Thailand for quite some time now, and I'd like you. I mean, people know a little bit about you from here, but, you know, this show goes uh, all over the world, really. So let me just say that you're an artist, you're a musician, you're a writer, you're an activist, and uh, I'd like for you to share with the listeners how you you got from being a student looking to go to Asia to do some research from Pennsylvania and end up ending up, you know, making a life there. Well, sure. Uh, my I, I grew up. My name real name is Todd Lavelle, and uh, it was when I went to Thailand that they, they gave me the name Tong Di. That's a later story. So I grew up in this big family. My parents had six of their own kids: five girls and a boy. I was the only boy. And uh, my little sister, who's a year younger than me, was deaf and autistic. And my parents had a traveling minstrel group called the American Young. Uh, we were the last blackface minstrel group in, in America, as far as I know, around 1970. And the group changed from a blackface minstrel group to kind of a song and dance group. So I grew up singing and dancing. My parents opened their home up to kids, uh, teenagers that they took in. Uh, so it became kind of a foster home. Some kids had come for the night. Some kids had come for years and stay with us. So I grew up listening to all kinds of music, black, white. Uh, whatever it was, uh, and then sports. Why I played every sport because I grew up with all these athletes and read every kind of book, and took all of that to Scranton Prep, where I uh, I wrestled and acted and spoke and did a whole lot of things, and then to the University of Scranton, where I did a this strange triple major in pre med uh, history and philosophy, and at the U. Uh, wrestled, spoke, debated, acted, uh, and kept my parents' youth group going on the weekends. And we'd take kids out to do different things. And after I graduated from the U, uh, while I was at the U, I supported myself. I paid for my own studies my whole life. But I was what they call a social director at a, a resort in the Poconos for seven summers and brought up other students and friends to work as well. And that work, that that introduced me to, I, I got to employ every kind of music and sport uh, that I that I had known, and some I didn't that, that I learned. So when I graduated from the U, I got a job on the Queen Elizabeth cruise ship, where I traveled for a year, singing uh, in three or four clubs on the ship, and then on a smaller ship uh, for another year, where I did more tours, more biology, history, as well as entertaining on the ship, and it was at that time that I received the Fulbright Scholarship to Thailand, which is a, a, a scholarship to do research. Uh, 
So I went to Thailand for two years to do research in herbal medicine, which took me throughout the mountains of, of Thailand to uh, gather herbs with these great mountain doctors and bring them back to the lab at a, a university in Bangkok and, and isolate them. So that's kind of how I got to Thailand in the beginning. Researching herbs. And then when, once you got there, I guess you in some way enjoyed what you were experiencing enough to stay? Yeah. When I went, I was warned uh, by, by the director of the Fulbright program. She said, this place can grow on you. And I laughed and I said, no, I come from a big, uh, happy uh, genuinely dysfunctional family in Scranton, <laughs> and uh, I'll be going right back. But it it bit me. I as I finished my Fulbright, uh, I had to go to a refugee camp to get herbs from doctors who were not Thai. They were Cambodian, Vietnamese, uh, mountain peoples from Laos called the Mong people, and it fascinated me. So when I finished my Fulbright. The uh, I asked for money from the UN and the U.S. government, and they made me what's called a staff development officer. So for two years after the Fulbright, I worked in refugee camps on the Burmese border, the Cambodian border, which uh, brought me to things I'd never seen. I'd never seen war. I'd never seen genocide. I'd never seen uh, the crazy things that I hope my children don't have to see and at the same time I was singing on the side I had met a band um, in Thailand they were a political group and uh, their music was banned off and on and I began to perform with them we, we went to Japan together and then we made an album together while I was working in the refugee camps and the album did very well uh, with, with an artist called Carabao. Um, and with the album doing well, and with my work in the refugee camps finishing up, I decided to put out my own music. So I put out my first album, which was called Thailand Inside Outside. Very strange. Uh, at the time, the big record companies in Thailand and in Asia wanted me to cut my hair. I had long hair, shave my beard, and sing love songs so we could all make a lot of money. <laughs> and I I instead wrote this album that was laughed at, you know, in the industry, kind of very, who wants to hear stories of local places and using Western instruments combined with local instruments, some that were all but forgotten. So the album uh, went from kind of being a joke in the industry to kind of being the word in the industry because it sold well and uh, at the time people weren't using the word world world music <laughs> but that's what it was and when that album did well I I, I kind of was on my way I decided I, I created my own company that we would I would tour and I was on TV a lot by that time my Thai was fluent Thai people by then were calling me Todd Tongdi Dong Tongdi was the name the mountain doctor gave me, which means good gold. And to this day, it's what they, what they call me there. So a lot of TV work, a lot of movies. Uh, I was writing columns and books, uh, both in English and in Thai. And my music was 
not uh, explosively popular, but it, it, it created a niche. And we sold enough that we could do the next album. And the, for the next album, I went to a, a, a forest, to a wildlife sanctuary that I wanted to help out and wrote the songs and recorded them in the wildlife sanctuary. That album was called Acoustic Life. And again, to the surprise of many of us, it did well and made a whole bunch of money that we gave to this uh, wildlife sanctuary. And then in 1995, I embarked on kind of our mega project, which is called Rhythm of the Earth. Growing up in America and listening to a lot of black blues, most of the great blues singers from the 1920s were blind. Blind Willie McTell, Blind Willie Johnson, Blind Lemon Jefferson. And I had a sister who was deaf and autistic, and I had been doing work with, with disabled people. So I scoured the country, really, uh, Thailand, looking for artists that were blind or disabled and were playing music, and I was pleasantly shocked by the fact that there were so many. And I began to record them, bring them on TV, uh, and over two years spent every cent I had, some I didn't, <laughs> on this on this Rhythm of the Earth project, which was, again, uh, kind of laughed at in the industry. Why would you want to... Who would care about that stuff? And uh, Warner Music picked it up, and, and then Warner International joined them. And it became kind of a big deal in Asia, the Rhythm of the Earth Project, and and then came out as a book series and a documentary series, and it just kind of grew, and it became a genre of its own, really. Uh, just the other day, a, a Time magazine wrote a really nice story on, on New World Music in Thailand and said, basically, you know, the grandfather of all this is Rhythm of the Earth which I thought was nice to, to, to recognize it. Yeah. So, so as I was doing these, these albums, after Rhythm of the Earth, I did a, a rock opera using all schizophrenic patients from mental hospitals. <clears throat> and the album, the album uh, uh, again, with Warner Music, and they said, you're crazy. And I said, yeah, maybe crazy sells. And the album did well uh, and received... Uh, what's called the Able Art Award and International Award for, for, uh, and then wrote another rock opera based on the life of Buddha called Shambhala. And so over the years, uh, music that is kind of everything theme-oriented, when I was forced to give it a genre, I called all of my music Sims music, S-I-M-M-S, meaning stories in mu myriad musical settings, stories in, mu in myriad musical settings, because my words kind of are the beginning of, of all the music. And as, as I did more shows and did more festivals, I found festival organizers wanted Todd Tongdi, but they didn't want the blind singers or the deaf uh, hand signers or the schizophrenic backup group. So I said, well, uh, maybe we have to create our own festival, like a festival that really is a borderless celebration of humanity, where everyone's invited except the dumb pop singers. We don't want dumb pop music. So we created this, uh, and I had no friends except the beer company in Thailand, Singha Beer, 
whom we had done a lot of work with. This was 2006. And we did the first world music festival in Thailand. Um, and that Rhythm of the Earth Festival uh, is now entering its 11th year, June 15th to the 18th we'll do the 11th Rhythm of the Earth World Music Festival and over over the course of that 12 years I'll say we've done about 90 world music festivals in Thailand and in about 20 other countries we just did one in Uzbekistan with the Uzbeki government one in Bhutan one in Texas um, so it's kind of this this concept of world music, I, I spell music with a Q, meaning all-inclusive, uh, has just kind of grown. And our company, my little company, is now, we have about 20 uh, permanent employees, and then we, each festival takes, you know, four or five hundred temporary people who, uh, uh, who have learned from us, worked with us, and uh, it's kind of, it, it's, it's grown. It's bigger than me. It's <laughs> and and uh, been copied a lot and and uh, so that that's what we do now. My company produces world music festivals. I perform. I have a an album. I I'm mixing while I'm home here in the U.S. called Black and White. It's all piano music. And uh, another project we have coming up called American Young, which goes back to my father's traveling minstrel group. Uh, but is a music of roots-based American music, all new stuff that I wrote, focused on areas. So there's a song from New Orleans. There's a song about Mark Twain from Missouri. Um, a song about the Irish American experience from Boston. This kind of thing. So, uh, well, this is fascinating, Todd. I, and I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering where, where does all this come from? I mean, I hear for sure that the influences from the closest people in your life are there uh your your siblings and i suppose your upbringing here in, in northeastern pennsylvania but there's such a i mean the amount of energy and imagination and organizational skill that is necessary to put this these sorts of uh projects together and keep them going for decades it really is impressive where does this come from why do you do it i mean just to make a buck i don't think so Thank you for uh, actually you you kind of summarize it succinctly. I think uh, energy, love, organizational skills. I think love is the big one. I think I think my master is is love on one side and death on the other, uh, because death is the the great reminder, the great friend who who reminds that that this is all the time you have and love. Everything I have comes from that, and love in its different colors. You know, whether it's eros and the beautiful romantic love I've known, sturge, the beautiful family love I've known, or that big love, agape, that we all come from and are headed to, I believe. And and so why do I do it? I do it because one, I feel I owe because I've been given so much, and. Two, because I absolutely love doing it. So, so uh, the French had this concept of picaresque novels, you know, where where each story kind of ended on its own, but was all connected to a bigger story. And my life really is uh, kind of a garbage picker 
creating as he goes along and and putting together this picaresque novel. It's all journal based. I, I've been writing. I've been keeping a journal since I'm eight or nine years old because my sister was deaf and it was the one way we could communicate. And you know, I have five or six hundred journals, which are probably the only possessions I really care about. <laughs> uh, where it all comes from. I write every day uh, poetry, stories, ideas, sketches. And uh, to be honest, sometimes it it comes from beyond me. I have some songs in Thailand that are well-known, and I've been asked you know, to dissect the lyrics. And I often say, you know, I, I wrote it with my hand, but it's it's bigger than me. I don't, you can take what you'd like from it because I don't feel like I own it. Uh, and I, I think I'm a conduit. I'm being used. Uh, I just don't know by whom or how, but, but I, I, I choose to call it love. So, so I think that's what, what drives me. Uh, I think, uh, sorry to add, but I think I have a, a, a deep set anger. And, and as a wrestler, when I first started to wrestle, I lost a lot because <laughs> I thought I could go out and beat a guy up. And, and I had a great coach at prep who said, you know, flames are uh, to be used efficiently. And if you know how to use them well, they can be hot coals that you use for a long time. And my anger, I, there are things that make me angry in this world. I think, I think we've been deceived and lied to in many ways. I think religion is, has, has done a great disservice to humanity. I think governments uh, have done some great things, but have done many, many not good things. And I know that we're not using the human resources that we have near us because we ourselves are so narrow. So, so we still don't know how to use autistic people or how to use... Um, Hispanic immigrants who have taken you know all this energy with them to the country, so I think that there's a deep-rooted anger and uh, this absolute ecstasy, absolute joy in being here. I'm really happy to be on the planet, and and with those, I I, I seem to drive forward. When that's wonderfully put, and really, it seems like you you have a, a healthy way of existence. Um, I, I'd like to ask, in, in your travels, in, uh, when you're at refugee camps or when you're in the mountains and, and uh, coming into contact with cultures uh, that maybe you had no idea about before, uh, all of these different ways of humanity, what, what, have, what have you learned that you didn't expect? I was in 10th grade when I went to West Virginia to the mountains on a Jesuit volunteer project and I said daddy what do I have to bring there and he said you bring respect and laughter and you bring your home he said don't go anywhere and expect people to open their homes to you you bring your home inside and you open it up to others and I can't believe that over the course of 40 years that's that's gotten me by everywhere and and so much is about the way we're bent. You know, if, if we're bent to, to fear and to uh, familiarity, then everything is, is, then culture 
gets the word strange added to it, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're bent to to learning and excited at the prospect of exchange, you know, seeing an opportunity to add color to ourselves, well, then that word strange gets erased, and it's the opportunity of culture. It's exciting. It's it's like being in a candy store, and it's just endless. And, well, and I I, I, uh, I hear that for sure, and I, I I've experienced that to a certain extent, not to the same extent as you, I suppose. And it, it is a wonderful feeling. Now, the the other side of it, I want to go to, which is not as nice, I'm sure, is when you were experiencing war and genocide in in uh, I, I think it was Burma and in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was that like? What did you? I mean, how did that affect you? I think first I was embarrassed. I was physically embarrassed because I'm human, and we as human beings are still capable of of really mean things. And and I I don't know if there's another race that will come after us, or uh, maybe it was the Neanderthals who were maybe kinder or more focused on creating. We're a cunning race, and that's why we've survived. And and I I guess by necessity I've chosen to you know invest in this race. And so the first feeling was embarrassment. The second, of course, anger. Uh, I, I can't tell you how how angry I was the first time I picked up a girl that had stepped on a landmine. Uh, and funny enough, some of the munitions were made at the Chamberlain plant in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, man. Uh, and, and the lies that we grew up with, really, these lies of power, uh, macho America is number one, just absolute bullshit. Uh, and that has spread to other countries who them themselves then want to be strong and powerful and number one and it's like it's like watching a bunch of buffed up guys on testosterone in a bar all trying to look tough when the fact is they're all wimps uh, when you really when you really think of it so so there was embarrassment there was anger and with that anger has always come determination what can we do here and and my job was to select uh, refugees from what I called the tough camps, the border camps, where they just came over the border, and some of those camps had two, three hundred thousand people. We had to select them for resettlement. So, so, uh, like with the hand of God, say you are going and you're not. And and then I worked later in the reprocessing camps where they would get a five-month course to get ready to come to America, to Europe, or wherever they were going, and. Uh, so there was hope, and there was, you know, to this day, I, I'm going next week out to Lowell, Massachusetts to see a bunch of Cambodian people who are like brothers and sisters because I've known them since they were in the refugee camps, um, and they've done very well. So so there's, you know, successes and failures, and uh, but through it all, again, I think the concept of debt that we owe, to have a full belly and to to have access to education and and the ideas we have especially in this country uh, we're we're embarrassingly gifted like we we start out with with great advantages uh, so 
Do you think, though, me, with the advantages that we, we do start off with, we are uh, sometimes lazy and, and, you know, compared to places and people who have to maybe struggle a little bit more or more in touch with more natural ways of existence? I do. I think that's a poignant uh, observation. We, we, and to use the word we, of course, is so general, but um, one, I think you're as narrow as you are allowed to be. So if you live in a real big place and, and don't have to go across the border as much, well, you grew up speaking one language, you grew up thinking your way is the right way, uh, whereas if you live in Northern Europe, you're forced from the time you're a kid to speak three or four languages. And I believe you develop true confidence, which is not, you know, where we have bigger guns or bigger muscles, but I'm okay with myself on this planet. That's true confidence. I'm okay with me. And uh, that means I'm okay with you. And I find Northern Europeans, again, I'm being general, uh, Australians, Kiwis, uh, people from New Zealand, have this genuine confidence. And Americans often have a fake confidence uh, that, it, that, quickly, that quickly crumbles when they're put in different situations. So, so it's a, this is a real important time for America and for the planet in that um, and I, 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 there's no insinuation about Donald Trump or whoever's in power. They're, they're small compared to the actual trends that are happening. And the trend is we're moving to the right uh, out of fear, and, and we need to uh, really focus on how are 9 billion people going to live on this rock? And, and, and we can't say it's about them. You know, it, it really is. We're all in, in, in on this. And uh, so we have to hurry up and teach respect. And we have to hurry up and incorporate, incorporate the colors that are available to us. And that's why we're doing the first World Music Festival in Scranton in September. Because I just can't believe the ethnic colors in this town now. I didn't I realize a, that. You're doing that. You're coming back in September to do it here? Yeah. That's yeah, fantastic. Something small to begin with, and then we'll see. But um, the other day I was at a ceremony for the karate people who have moved here from Bhutan. There's about 300 of them. Yeah, I'm aware of that group. It's a great addition to our city. Right. And, I, and at this ceremony, I said, uh, angrily, I said, why isn't there anyone from the city here? Like, if I was mayor or leader, I would be doing backflips and saying, my God, welcome uh, to these, they're like natural vegetarians, respectful. They've been through literally hell because they're, they're from Bhutan, sent to Nepal, sent back to Bhutan. They have no home. And yet they carry in them this beautiful inner peace. And, and man, we need that. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other day, having dinner at a place called Zambuca downtown, I guess. And sitting after we had dinner with the, they're all from Albania. Yep. That's right. And I've been I, there too. I said, "Wow, why don't we have an Albanian food festival? Like all this color, and and we're not we're not incorporating it. And if you want to be crass about it, forget the culture. We need the tax base. We need 
young people working and and paying taxes to pay for all of us old people. That's right. That's right. Uh, Immigrants are are perfect for that. That's the history of our country, rebuilding cities in that manner. An influx of immigration and a city gets new energy. Great challenge of of literally thousands of cities around the country. Um, when I was a boy, my father, who was a fan of Scranton, he really believed in Scranton, was very angry because his relatives were all coal miners and railroad people. And he said, the railroads and the coal are leaving and what's coming? We, we owe you kids what's coming. And our cousins in Pittsburgh, uh, my father would tell us, you know, they, they steel left and they brought in biotechnology and art. But what are we bringing here? And we never did. We never did bring anything here. And I believe uh, one of the songs on this American Young album is called Coal to Color. And it's about that transformation. How do you go from being an industrial little town to, to celebrating ethnic diversity, which I see as the only way out of the doldrums, you know? You gotta... And it's... Uh, there's a lot of fun attached to it. It's not, it's uh, not definitely. hard labor. It's, it's yeah. tons of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Todd Tongdi Lavelle, and uh, he's an artist, a musician, an impresario, a writer, a Fulbright scholar, so many things. Good man, generally, I think is fair to say. Uh, Todd, we're, we're almost out of time. Uh, do you want to share some contact information so people can get to, you know, in touch with what you're doing? And, uh, sure. Maybe? Uh, yeah, you can go on to YouTube, and my name on YouTube is, uh, you'll see a lot of stuff, Todd Tong D and then Lavelle, Todd Tong D Lavelle. Um, most of it isn't my own. Other people take our songs, and we have four or 500 published songs, so they take them and make their own YouTube channels. Um, I'm sorry to say our website just got hacked, so we're rebuilding the website. But you can just throw my name up on Google, and there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that will come up. Again, I want to thank the people of Thailand who opened their homes and hearts and have allowed me to to create there, and, and we have some great creations coming up, uh, and invite the people of Scranton to look close to you and internationalize your local culture. Like uh, What we have here is, is world-class as far as the quality of people goes. So, uh, And my phone number is... Uh, you just put a plus and then six six eight one six one six eight two zero two. You can call me anytime. We have visitors from Scranton about two a month now. It's just amazing since over the last three or four years. To People Bang- coming to Bangkok to Thailand to Thailand, yeah. and they say this is my cousin's cousin Tippy. <laughs> He's coming over there, and uh, can you take care of him? And because we you know, we have, we've done so much around the country. It's wonderful to, this morning we sent two lawyers from Philly who have friends in Scranton. We just sent them up to mountain villages in the north where friends will take care of them for a week and they'll get to see the real, the real thing, I hope. And, uh, yeah, so come and, and travel. Get out and see things and travel inside your own home. You know, how much do you know about the people near you? And, and uh, my mom has Alzheimer's. And we've we've sucked probably every word or story we can out of her. Uh, do that, 
do that. Our, our lives are full of story, and those stories are the source of of happiness, of connectivity, and and uh, actually can be the source of poetry, songs, movies. As one one guy who was in my dad's youth group uh, was Michael King, who writes Sex in the City and some other great stuff. That kind of thing, you know. There's stories around here. Take them and travel with them. Beautiful, well put, and uh, have fun in, in June in Bangkok with the 11th installment of Rhythm of the Earth World yeah. Festival. And uh, I look forward to your your um, endeavor in September here in northeastern Pennsylvania. And hopefully, I'll see you out and about here, and maybe in Thailand. I might be knocking on your door. Come over, come over. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. An absolute honor to, to share time with you. Oh, same here. It was a pleasure talking with you. All right. Take care. Bye.
spinsters. Spinsters were everywhere when I was growing up. You'd see them on Sundays at church, perfumed and in their finery. You'd see them at parties, christenings and first Holy Communions and graduations and weddings and anniversaries and funerals. They were regulars at funerals. Self-effacing sisters-in-law, finicky great-aunts, brisk ladies who were only distantly related to the family they lived with, helpmates and hindrances, secret keepers and busybodies, beloved and tolerated, fondly recalled and barely remembered. They crept out of their attic rooms, made an appearance in our lives, and silently faded out of them. My favorite spinsters were Claire and Ag and Margaret and Dolores. Claire and Ag were actual aunts of a friend of mine, as opposed to those honorary aunts who claim the title by length of familiarity with a family. Margaret was my mother's friend and my brother's godmother. Dolores was my mother's cousin. Claire was a classically prim schoolteacher, and visits to her small, tidy house meant hard candy, quasi-adult conversation, and corrected grammar. Ag was spry and skeletal and seemed ancient, but then they all seemed old, and lived in a room in my friend's house, a sanctuary we rarely entered. Ag was always around, twinkling and dispensing unsolicited advice and cryptic Celtic wisdom. Margaret was rumored to have money. She was jolly and obese, and something of an intellectual, or at least my mother always said how smart she was. She was a voracious reader and a passionate puzzle solver. I remember her large frame lodged in front of a massive puzzle of a bucolic scene, half-solved, with scattered pieces covering her dining room table. She lived with her two bachelor brothers, who never left their rooms, never left the house, the Boo Radleys of their block. They just didn't come out, my mother said matter-of-factly. My mother was fond of Margaret, and welcomed her into the family through godmotherhood. Oh, he'll get some good gifts, my Aunt Jules said, thinking of Margaret's piles of cash and my brother's good fortune not to get stuck with one of the cheaper relatives. Dolores was a parish character, tall and deep-voiced, with a cigarette always dangling from her lips. She took care of her mother after her brother Walter abandoned them for his much-maligned wife and moved to a neighboring borough. She worked in the meat section of a grocery store and had a series of fey young men as companions and helpers. A young man, sometimes a seminarian, would run errands for Dolores and laugh and gossip with her for a time, and then be replaced by another young man. She was among the people who mattered in the parish and very much involved in church activities and groups like the Altar and Rosary Society. Every year she played Mr. Bones in the Society's minstrel show. With her dry wit and expert delivery, she was a natural. I wish I had half the nerve that Dolores has, my mother used to say. These women were funny and smart, and they were alternately ignored 
and embraced by the community. They took care of others, and they were taken care of in turn. They were odd women in the land of the coupled. They went to their jobs, school teachers or shop clerks or secretaries or factory workers, assembling hats or ladies' undergarments, say, or housekeepers or unofficial nannies. They went to church every Sunday. They went on vacations and trips if they had the funds or were subsidized. They went to dinner on occasion with their spinster sorority. They went to their graves. I'm an old maid school teacher, Rosalind Russell Crowes in the 1955 movie Picnic. Sad and desperate, speaking for generations of spinsters in movies, plays, and TV shows. Her character was one of the lucky ones, snagging the wary and befuddled haberdasher played by Arthur O'Connell. William Inge, a sad man himself, wrote the play on which the movie is based. He was a bard of loneliness and constrained lives and missed opportunities. The great character actors Marjorie Maine, Mary Wicks, and Margaret Hamilton added their special spin to the old maid, giving her an edge and a hard humor and softening the sentimentality. In the sunnier realm of 60s television, Alice pined for Sam the Butcher as she spent her life serving solace and roast beef to that brood of Brady's and Mike and Carol, their perplexed parents. In the 1940 comedy romance, Remember the Night, written by Preston Sturges and starring Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, there's a touching scene with Stanwyck and McMurray's character's maiden aunt. In his script, Sturges describes Aunt Emma as an energetic middle-aged spinster with heart of gold whose bark is worse than her bite. In the scene, she inadvertently reveals a wedding dress wrapped in an old newspaper and a small stack of letters. I fiddled around with the idea one summer and was all right again come fall. The spinster gets her moment, and the moment unearths a loss, a romance gone sour, a tragic misunderstanding, a lover who went away and never came back. Then there's all that time since, alone in an attic room with chipped knickknacks and half-empty perfume bottles and sepia-tinted memories. I don't know if Claire and Ag and Margaret and Dolores had one of those memories. We never asked. They played their parts in our lives and shuffled off stage. I've loved and lost again I ask you what chance have I When each love I meet just makes me cry He loves a while then says goodbye I've loved and lost again 
chance to win I've loved and lost again Stellar Amica. Seven white cumulus clouds billow slow across the late evening sky toward our moon, half illuminated, just as they pass as if to caress and coalesce our long-time stellar Amica. I realize I am witnessing a moment never to be reproduced and one cumulus spread open toward disappearance into another form so charming I felt forlorn. Turn your lights down low And pull your window curtain Oh, let your moon come shining in Into our lives again Say, you know, it's been a long, long time I got this message for you, boy yeah, it seems that I was never on time Still I want to get through to you, boy On time, on time I want to give you some love Good, good loving I want to give you some good, good loving Good, good loving Oh, I, oh, I, oh, I, 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 I I want to give you some good, good loving Loving you is like a song I replay Every three minutes and thirty seconds of every day And every chorus was written for us to recite Every beautiful melody of devotion Every night this potion might, this ocean might Carry me in a wave of emotion I ask you to marry me in every word Every second and every third Expresses a happiness more clearly than ever heard And I, when I play them every chord is a poem Telling my father how grateful I am Because I know I'm the harmonies possess a sensation similar to your caress And if you're asking and I'm telling you a siesta Stand in love, take my hand and love your bless Right, right I want to give you some good, good loving I want to give you some loving Good, good loving I want to give you some good, good loving Good, good loving Oh, 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 oh,
want to give you some good, good love. And there you have it, episode 229 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, Todd Tung D. Lavelle, philosopher, musician, impresario, and all-around down-to-earth good man. Thank you so much, sir, for sharing your journey and your experience and your plans for the future with us. I also like to thank another pretty decent man, Michael Pavis, the doctor, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, for crafting and sharing with us another wonderful essay. I also like to thank these musical guests, Paul Simon, the Allman Brothers, Todd Tungdi Lavelle, and his great accompaniment. Patsy Klein, Lauren Hill, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Thank you so much for listening to the program. Thank you to the folks in Kenya and in France and in California and in Norway. It is amazing that you are listening. And, of course, in Northeast PA. Have a great week. Until next time, take care. <laughs>